Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, looking at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those conscious coma-inducing vibrations. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where you don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Oh yes, live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days or go to michaeldeacon.com. If you care to interact with me and other listeners, you can do that right now. My guest tonight is Jerry Wills. Jerry is a well-known international speaker, radio, and internet TV broadcaster. Jerry began his extraordinary life as a baby abandoned near a military base as he grew he discovered healing and intuitive abilities that would attract attention from organized religion and other worldly beings once again thank you ladies and gentlemen for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds here we are again on a night like this it certainly feels good to be back here on the program under pale moonlight what a tremendous week it's been i hope all of you out there are doing well there's so much to say here but i believe my first guest is ready jerry are you there yes hi michael how's it going my friend yeah i'm good perfect i'm uh, losing your audio unfortunately yeah i could hear that now i could hear that echo uh that was just the studio uh monitors i had turned up to make sure it wasn't the uh headset i was using off the um headset preamp yeah you actually have a pretty good setup yeah, yeah, I do. It's a complete uh, broadcast studio here in our home. Oh, yes, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do, Jerry, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my wife and I look for lost cities in South America. We have been for over 20 years. <clears throat> well, I have been for over 20. She and I have been together for 20. So together, you know, we've been looking for 20 years at least. I think it's about eight years longer for me. Uh, we go to South America and other parts of the world trying to find evidence of lost civilizations and lost knowledge. 
We believe that there's one of two things, if not both things, that have happened, and that is that uh, either there was some extraterrestrial influence, and uh, very, of course, very likely, that uh, the civilization that existed <clears throat> on this planet before the Ice Age was actually a civilization that was highly advanced, and because of natural disasters, uh, most of them perished, and life on this planet became much, much more difficult, and fewer and fewer people were left afterwards. That's one thing we do. Um, aside from that, we also have um, our own broadcasts, uh, yeah, like you, Michael. Uh, the difference is we do video uh, for the Jerry Wills show. Right. And uh, when I'm not doing all these other things... I'm working with people. I work as a healer and a medical intuitive, so I usually track down what's wrong with a person, and sometimes I can help them by fixing it, and other times I can help them by telling them what to do to help themselves. I've discovered a long time ago I could do this. I mean, I was just a kid um, growing up in hills of Kentucky, and this sort of thing wasn't very well received. So I needed to learn to keep quiet, which eventually I did. Um, but, you know, that carried forward into my life until I was about, oh, 42, 43 years old. And exited a relationship, a marriage that I was in because I was tired of being criticized and made fun of for what I thought about UFOs. Really? That happened? Oh yeah, it did. It did. Uh, eight, 18, 19 years in a relationship. And I just, you know, I couldn't talk about these things because it was, uh, it was goofy. <laughs> it wasn't real. And yet here I had told her oh, time and time again and different, through different questions and over the years about the contacts that I had had, what they were like, what they had said, what was done, when it happened, how it happened. So, you know, this stuff went on for quite a while. And the healing thing, that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, I kept feeling this inner urge. I'm sure a lot of people have felt that in their lives. Well, it is interesting that you're talking about this, though. I've been wanting to talk to someone else who has gone through this experience with a significant other who is not so receptive of these sort of things that we talk about. Yeah, it's not easy because, you know, you're in a relationship. You don't want to cause waves. You don't want to be what they don't like. And so in order to be what they are expecting, you start becoming someone that isn't yourself. And I, uh, I was successful. I had... You know, a, a long time electronics business in Phoenix. That's where I live now currently. And, uh, it was, you know, just something that I did. It was my business. I, I generated it from $10 and turned it into a few hundred thousand dollars a year business. And it was figured that if I started talking about this and started, uh, doing this healing thing that it was really going to create a, a cascade of unfortunate events. Business would be lost. I would be a laughing stock, and I wouldn't be taken seriously. You know, it would be tantamount to operating a business 
as a professional bodybuilder, let's say, and you have a lot of clients and you're a real manly man, and then they find out that you like to dress in women's clothes. What is that going to do to your uh, manly man image and your bodybuilding established? Yeah, that sort state? of thing does happen, actually, believe it or not. Oh, no, I, I know. I, I had a friend that oh, liked goodness. to dress up in women's clothes. I was astonished. <laughs> I, I, You know, I, I've never been down that road myself, but there are no, people but, who, you know, enjoy that sort of thing and more power to them. Yeah, well, good. That's what I told yeah, Nick. I said, hey, like. it makes you happy, go for it. Right. You know, I, I have friends who are uh, who are gay and lesbian. I have friends who are black, white, yellow. Uh, I mean, it's like I don't see that there's any reason to put people into categories. I think that's yeah, stupid. I agree. But, you know, in my environment with this business, it was, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'll just not do this. You got to watch what you say, especially in your position. Yeah. So... I finally got to the point to where it was impossible to really feel comfortable in my own skin. And, of course, I had another trip planned to Peru because we were you know, taking people on trips to Peru for many years. And uh, who would have known that on that particular trip that there would be a series of events that would compel me to make a choice? And so a choice was made. And when I returned home, um, that relationship very quickly disintegrated. Um, it was after that that I met Kathy, and she was the first person that I'd ever met that thought that it was very interesting. By the way, I had to say. by the way, Jerry, I got to cut you off there. And now I'm curious. Let's hit that rewind button. What made you hook up with this woman in the first place? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Are you talking about the one that uh, didn't agree with my... Correct. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know... What drew you in? I, I really... I think I was... I think I was trying to find some level of being normal in life. Mm, that's the issue right there. Yeah, yeah it is. And I, I see right. it very clearly now. Yeah. You know... Because my whole life has been really damn strange. Exactly. And this is the point where I ask you about your earliest memory. Since you've had such an extraordinary life, at an early age, you were basically left alone. Yeah, I was. I was dropped off in a farmhouse somewhere in Kentucky, I guess. And uh, the people that dropped me off were not from this world. At least that's what I'm told. I... Of course, I was a baby. How would I know? Although I do have some really abstract memories from that time, and uh, folks like Brad Steiger and others have, you know, had hypnosis done with some really good hypnotherapists and pulled some of the story out. But uh, I ended up in the hospital in Fort Knox, and then I was uh, handed over to a husband and wife. He was in the army. She was not. And then I was their child, but my birth certificate doesn't have anything on it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, so, so damn contrived. It's, it's bizarre. There's uh, just nothing there. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, through, through life and times, you eventually get to a point where I did anyway. I got to a point where I never felt like I belonged here. I never felt like I was part of anything that was going on here. It wasn't really being an outcast, 
but it was being separated from what everyone else was taking for granted as being normal. They, I learned early on, they couldn't see energy around people and plants and animals. They just didn't have a clue about it. They didn't have any idea about seeing people on the other side after they've died. And when I would tell them things that were going to happen in the future, well, that was the devil's work. You know, you can't, you can't do that. It's in God's hands. How can you see it? God wouldn't allow that. And I, I felt, you know, ostracized really, uh, separated from them and unable to really have a conversation. And honestly, there really wasn't any vocabulary to even try to have a conversation with. I didn't have a vocabulary for this. So I just had to be quiet. I see. And, yeah. And by the way, in your bio, it says after high school, um, that's when you came to re- organized religion. Yeah. You know, not many, <laughs> not many people say that sort of thing. Usually it's very, very early on when the parents get them involved into religion. And you got that after high school, which is unusual for me to hear. Well, they, the family I was with, they really weren't churchgoers. Ah, okay. I see. So, I mean, they tried to get me to go to Sunday school and, you know, they had the, um, they had the preachers show up one afternoon, take me hunting for squirrels. Well, the squirrels were my friends. I mean, these are the people I could talk to, strange as it sounds. The animals were the ones that I really connected with. And this, you know, pinhead, he was wanting me to, he was wanting, to kill them. It's like, why would you do that? Well, God gave them to us for food so we can kill them. And I said, no, you know, I've got plenty of food. Why would I do that? So I'm not sure who your God is. Oh, he got so upset. So anyway, it was a very unusual childhood. Yes, I was going to say you had a very isolated childhood, I imagine. Yeah, I did. Well, you know, growing up on a farm in central Kentucky. That's tough. I didn't go to town, but maybe once or twice a year. Oh, my, yes. Didn't wear shoes unless it was wintertime or school. Yeah, that must have been pretty rough for you there, Jerry. Well, it was normal. I didn't know that it was rough. Well, right. You don't know that now. Well, in hindsight, now you know it's a kind of a rough upbringing for uh, someone, well, anyone, really. Yeah. Well, and in, in hindsight, you know, it was a very strange, strange time. I wouldn't want to do it over, I don't think, um, because there weren't really a lot of um, good memories from that period, except, of course, for the extraterrestrials and the people I met. Yeah, when, did, were, that, when did that come in, into your life, Jerry, the very first time, if you recall? Well, um, it started when I was about 12 and a half years old, and it was just a strange thing. There was... This, there was this huge, uh, torpedo shaped, dirigible shaped, more dirigible shaped, uh, metallic thing floating just above the tree line. It had these large circles on it that had pastel like colors pulsing. And, uh, it just stopped as if it were staring at me and I, as I was staring at it. And so I thought, huh. I'm going to go check this out. So I was going to take off running. And very clearly in my head, it was like, no, don't come over here. You could be hurt. We'll come back and see you again another time. And then it just went. Well, the 
there was a pretty nice breeze, you know, kind of a stiff breeze from my left. But this was going against the breeze, silently. The full moon was out. It was shining off this uh, metal surface. It was at dusk, so it wasn't completely dark. I could still see you know, the details of the trees. It was probably, I don't know, 1,500 feet away from me. And I just stood there dumbfounded watching this thing go. And it wouldn't be until the next uh, spring that I would be down in the woods and this man approached me. It was hot, you know. and I was just in uh, cutoffs and a T-shirt with no arms <laughs> and some and some um, combat boots, kind of like Doc Martens are now. Yeah. I didn't know I was in style in the future at the time. And uh, he just comes casually walking up through the forest towards me. So I, well, I was sitting down resting. I was actually waiting for a friend of mine to show up that was hiking there from another location. And he was dressed in a one-piece kind of an outfit, kind of a beige color. Um, now we would call it a lycra outfit, but back then there was no such thing as that. But it was just sucked up to his body. He didn't even have shoes. This outfit just became his footwear. You could see there were soles in the bottom of his feet, but it was like it was all just one piece. Right up around the neck, right around the, the wrists. And he was a pleasant guy, long hair like a hippie, which I thought was pretty good. I liked that. And, uh, he and I talked for not very long. And he wanted to know a little bit about me and wanted to know what I knew about things and, um, you know, just a short conversation. Ask, well, can I come back and visit with you again sometime and maybe bring some of my friends? It's like, sure. He says, all right, well, I've got to go and I'll see you soon. I said, well, how will I know when I'm going to meet up with you? He says, you'll know. You'll hear, you'll hear a sound and you'll know that it's us. And he turned and walked off. You didn't think I, that was, that was a little strange to encounter that? Oh, it was damn strange because, I mean, who would you meet in the forest dressed like that on a hot, muggy day like this? Seriously, that's very unusual. Mm-hmm. But he didn't seem like he was hot. He seemed to be just fine. I was hot. I was sweating. Well, it would probably be another month before this fellow uh would show up again. And when he did show up, um, he showed up in a UFO. And there was this high-pitched beeping noise that um, I heard in the middle of the night when everyone was asleep. I thought, what is that? What is that noise? It's like Morse code, and it's going so damn fast, I can't figure out what. So I learned Morse code to try and figure it out. <clears throat> Interesting. And, you know, finally, you know, it was like, get a clue, pal. Uh, they're right down there <laughs> in one of those... The fields way in the back waiting for you. So I would sneak out of the house, which wasn't hard to do because we had an outhouse. Going outside to use the bathroom was, well, that was the protocol. Right. And no one paid attention to me going outside. They would just, if they did, they'd go back to sleep. And so that's what I did. And I, that went on for a number of years over and over and over again. Winter, summer, didn't matter. It's difficult in the winter because it was cold. And you never shared this with, with the folks you were staying with? I told my mom. How did mom take it? She didn't like this at all. Oh. She told me not to do that, not to be talking to those people. 
You see, my dad had died when I was seven. And that's when the military showed up and they were hell-bent on taking me with them. And, of course, she wasn't about to let that happen. And that's the re- we had been living in Denver. And so we immediately left there, went to Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere, on a farm. And that's where I grew up. So when she heard about these folks, you know, I remember she was uh, kind of breathless, kind of pale. And uh, she ordered me not to go and talk to these people again, ever. Well, that didn't work. No, of course. So I, of course. They were, they were, well, they were nice to me, and everyone else wasn't. You know, I was basically... I was basically treated as though I was um, their laborer, live-in laborer. There was no love. There was no compassion. There wasn't any of that. It was just I was there and I was used. Not, you know, I mean, not like people are talking about today, like, you know, in naughty ways, but I was used as a laborer. I'm glad you clarified that. You know, and um, if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, I was beat. So You were beat? Oh, yeah. They physically harmed you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they did. Um, you know, uh, being punched in the face with a fist, you know, beat with a tobacco stick, which is basically a one inch by one inch, uh, four or five foot long piece of, um, wood, uh, beat until it broke. Good uh, lord. Bla- went to school with black eyes. Um, you know, it wasn't very pleasant. Busted lip. So, no, it wasn't very nice at all. Wow. So these folks, the ETs, they were nice. They were very pleasant. And I thoroughly enjoyed what I was learning from them. And I thoroughly enjoyed their company. And there was at one point where they um, they asked me if I wanted to return, if I wanted to go back home. And I said no, because my stepdad was drunk and he was beating on my mother. If I wasn't there, she was getting it. And they said, no, that's not what we mean. Do you want to come with us and go back home? Well, that was a strange, strange idea for some reason. And I, uh, you know, it was, I was very perplexed about this. And I said, well, I can't. I mean, they're my mom. And, you know, I said, well, you see, she really isn't your mom. You were adopted. We brought you here. Oh, boy. Well, that was just a little bit over the top for me. I didn't know what to think, and I felt this fight-or-flight feeling. <clears throat> so I got up and I took off and ran back to the house, which was about half a mile or so away. The fighting had stopped. It was now dark. And so I wasn't even asked where I'd been. And I asked my mother, was I adopted? And again, she got this look on her face. And she says, "Why? what do you mean? Why are you asking me this? And I said, because um, I was talking to the people in the Flying Saucers, and they told me that I was adopted, and if I wanted to, I could go back home. And she says, you weren't adopted. I have your birth certificate right here. And she dug through papers until she finally found it and showed it to me. She says, this proves that you're my son. You weren't adopted. That's the end of the story. I don't want you talking to those people again. Why would they tell you such a thing? You know, going on and on about it. And I was totally confused because so I'd never really looked at a birth certificate. I didn't know what was supposed to be there. <clears throat> well, of course, I didn't go. And it wouldn't be until I was 38 years old 
when they would have returned again because they were returning periodically through my life. And they told me that my mother was going to die. If I wanted to see her before that happened, <clears throat> that I would need to go to Florida to see her. Well, she was never really like a mother anyway. And after I left home, you know, it was one of those situations where if I had to make a phone call because I was so poor, I'd have to call Collect. And I remember calling Collect on a Christmas Eve because I was really, you know, not feeling very cheery. <laughs> I needed someone to talk to. Understood, yeah. I called her and she says, you shouldn't be calling Collect. Um, can't afford this and hung up on me. Oh, my. So after that, you know, that was the end of it for me. So I told Zoe, which is the name of the fellow that I was talking to. He's the one who kept coming back again and again. And I said, no, I don't think I'll be going to Florida. I'm not close to her, not even a little. He says, all right, well, we wanted to let you know because we didn't want you to be emotionally disturbed by this. And there's something else you need to know. And I said, all right, what is it? Well, you need to know that you were adopted and the circumstances are going to come to light. <clears throat> and we want to make sure that you hear the story from us before you hear it anywhere else. So you'll understand what the truth is. And they proceeded to tell me how they had brought me here, the reasons and, you know, the chain of events and so forth. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I was married to this other woman at the time and, um, she, the, the, the amber light that was coming from the front room, she had seen it, scared her badly. And she got up to see what it was. And she came back like a zombie, laid down and just lay there and went to sleep. And it was after that that Zoe showed up. Well, after hearing all this from Zoe, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm feeling kind of the same thing as I felt when I was just a little kid. I'm not sure what to believe about this. Sure enough, um, a couple of weeks later, I got a call that she had passed away and my sister, who would not really be my sister, but my sister all the same, uh, called to tell me that she was at the funeral and she says, um, I have something to tell you. You better sit down. And I said, I am sitting. What did you find out? Oh my goodness. Words you never want to hear. Yeah. Well, I never expected it calling me from the, you know, the funeral and telling me this, this stuff. Right. So she proceeded to tell me that she'd overheard a conversation between my stepdad and some other men. And so she related to me a story very similar to what I'd been told by Zoe. Although they had it from a different perspective, of course, but in all in all, I mean, you could take both stories and pretty much lay them over the top of each other with just, you know, variations that would be there as a result of different points of view. And that just took the wind out of me. I wasn't sitting down. I was sitting down by then, sank into the chair. She said she had to go. She's hoping I was going to be all right. And I had to sit there and think about this now, all these things. So, you know, when I talk about not being from here, there's really no evidence to support that. And people like empirical evidence. Of course, all, of course. But all I've got is what I've been told. And who knows? Uh, who knows what the real truth is, but this is my truth. And 
as a result of that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of folks that make a big deal of it. I don't. I've met these people from other worlds. I've had long conversations with them on many occasions. And they're just like people from here. They're just from someplace else. And if I'm from someplace else, well, I don't see it as being any different than uh, being from another country. It just happens to be another world. And it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And what race would you say this was that you spoke to, Jerry? Well, they look just like, you know, they just look like people. They didn't. Uh, these were all Caucasians, but I have met, um, well, I wouldn't say African-Americans because they certainly aren't. <laughs> yes. But um, they're from somewhere else. They're that same, you know, genetic lineage. Uh, I've met those who are, uh, that look Asian. Um, they're not all blonde hair, blue eyed. Some of them have brown hair and green eyes. Some, you know, like this, um, uh, dark skinned man, he had incredibly clear blue eyes. Um, so, I mean, there, there's just all kinds of different people out there, but they're just people. And what I was told is that people exist other places. And the reason that there are people here on this world is because they were brought here, but there are things that happened. You know, perhaps before the last ice age and all of that information, all those memories were gone. All the knowledge was lost and it turned what was left turned into mythology and abstracts of what the truth actually was. And so, um, you know, people here have amnesia. They, they just don't know. They don't know where they're from, really. Of course, of course. And it's interesting that you say that because I'm very fascinated with human origin. And we'll get into a little bit about of all those things in a moment here. But I, I want to go back again in time here um, to the point where you were just leaving the um, your, your home. Um, where, where'd you go, Jerry? I'm very curious. Um, leaving my home. Give me an age because I've left home a few times. Oh, well, the very last time before you uh, never looked back. Well, are you talking about the last relationship? Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about the split from the adopted parent. Oh, well, you see, that happened because I refused to do something. And ah, okay. Um, the knife didn't work because I, I was incredibly strong. Incredibly strong. And so I, and very fast. And so I got the knife, tossed it away. And then he came at me with a butcher's cleaver. I dodged that, took it away. And then he went after the shotgun and brought the double barrel shotgun after me. And my mom stood between he and I and refused to allow him to kill me. Good Lord. And so I um, grabbed my guitar and put on my leather jacket and it was raining sprinkling, not heavy rain, and I took off walking, and I left home, and I didn't look back. And that's why life was so hard. My God, yeah. I really didn't have any preparation for what the real world was like. I was very isolated on that farm. You know, and all the cruel things and the inhumane things that had happened to me, um, it had not changed who I am inside. It was just testament to how the people on this world can be so tragically um, indifferent to others. And, you know, it's, we're seeing that now today more than ever. Yeah, we are. And it's, it's been around for what seems like forever. 
Um, but I didn't allow it to change who I am. Right. Because I cared about people. Right. So I got involved at some point with, um, cause I was doing this healing thing, you know, I, I knew I could do it. I'd been working on animals and a couple of people that really needed help. Like the old guy that stepped off the tractor and twisted his knee. He was hurting really bad. So I just put my hands on his knee and it got better instantly. And that freaked him out. <clears throat> it wasn't very well received, unfortunately. But I knew that I could do this. So I decided that I would study the different religions. And I did. And what I found was that there were two different religions that would accommodate this sort of thing. Um, one was Pentecostal, which were these folks were kind of scary to me. And the other, uh, forgot what they were. Um, that yeah, maybe will come to me later, but it was, it was one of those religions where it's okay if you do this. So I got involved with this group <clears throat> at a place called the Lighthouse in town and they were Jesus freaks. And of course back in, you know, the uh, early seventies, Jesus freaks were around and I was one of them. They liked me and people that had broken legs or this, that, or the other, not right. They needed help. And I just accommodated them. I fixed it up. They would chisel off the cast. The guy would walk around and go, praise God. And that was the end of it. I was doing this a lot. I thought it was fabulous. <clears throat> Finally, I was being, you know, respected. It was like, hey, you know, they like this. I'm not alone anymore. Well, <laughs> Uh, this guy who was the, um, pastor at this big fancy church, I got a request for me to go over there and talk to him. It finally made its way to the head of the church. And I went to see him in this big office that had mahogany walls and a big desk and air conditioned. And he was dressed up like, you know, <laughs> he was really fancy. Very nice. Yeah, very nicely dressed. Yeah, three-piece suit and tie. You know, everything was clean and nice. I went there in my bell-bottoms, my T-shirt, tie-dye T-shirt, had some love beads around my neck, and uh long hair. And he proceeded to tell me that uh <clears throat> I was an instrument of God that uh, God wanted me to minister to his children. And he uh, says, you know, you're young. You know, you're going to have to go to seminary school. But after that, you'll be a full-fledged minister. And he says, we know what young people like. You'll have a car, a nice car. You'll have plenty of money. And you'll have, you'll have women, you know, much as you want. Says anything you want, it'll be yours. Wow. God, God will see to it. He says, but, uh, and I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. Okay. So where do I sign up? He says, well, you know, you're going to have to make some changes because, uh, you know, you can't wear bell bottoms. You have to, he's, uh, I picked you out a suit. He pointed over to a chair and here was a suit similar to what he was wearing. Hell, I'd never been in a suit in my life. And, he says, you're going to have to get a haircut. You're going to have to stop smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and smoking, you know, smoking marijuana. He says, I'm sure you smoke marijuana. And I said, oh, yeah, I love it. So you can't have fun, in other words. 
Yeah. And he says, you know, no more love beads. Oh, no. And you're like, you're going to have to stop listening to the devil's rock and roll. You can't be a hippie no more, in other words. Yeah. And I just looked at him and I said, have you lost your damn mind? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't mean any disrespect. But what I'm doing is working really well. And I think if God wanted me to change, God would have told me. He said, well, God's speaking through me, son. And I said, no, no, God talks to me directly. He says, he does? I said, oh, yeah, he always has. And he hasn't told me anything about changing any of this stuff. He says, well, that's, I said, I don't understand that. I said, well, I do, because I don't know who your God is, but my God loves me just the way I am. And I thought that's what you were supposed to be preaching, that God loves us the way we are. And he says, well, I can see that we're not going to be able to make any headway on this. <laughs> and I said, right. I pulled out a cigarette and lit it up. And I said, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and I walked out. Yeah, he, he was really trying to rope you in there. Well, sure, because I was a moneymaker for the church. Yeah, they I didn't really... see it that way at the time, but that's right. what it was. You know, these these guys dressing up fancy and hollering praise God, and laying their hands on people and owning and mansions they... and... Yeah. Various cars. Yeah, the, the pastors today, it's a very lucrative business plan. Well, you know, and if I wanted to do something like that, I, I could, I could go down that path, I suppose. I don't know if I could now. It's a very, I mean, it's a very questionable path once you, uh, think about it at the end of the day, once, once you're actually laying in bed. It's, it's a very difficult one for me to even process if I would try to take advantage of anyone to that level. Especially that level. I mean, I, I do have lines I must not cross. And giving anyone sort of like a false hope on anything is something that I, I could never really do or get over. Well, see, it isn't false hope as far as they see it, though, Michael. What true, they see true. it as, it's all God's will. You show up and do your part. God takes it from there. And if it works, fine. If it doesn't, fine. It's no one's fault. It's really predicated on uh, on pray, praying on those who are desperate and weak. And um, I I felt the whole thing was a sham. And you know, and in my in my world back then, I told him I, I don't know who your God is, but it isn't mine. Um, and that was pretty much saying the same thing that, you know, you're deluding yourself because Correct. you think that you're, you're having this conversation that's only happening in your own mind. Now that's not to say that there aren't preachers out there who are legitimate and good folks, but my experience has not been all that, um, generous. Yeah, I understand completely. There's plenty of, uh, folks you'll come across with various stories and you could kind of weed through them and, um, discern who's genuine and who isn't pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Well, what he didn't realize is I could see energy around people and I could hear their thoughts. Mm. And, you know, I had a whole list of psychic phenomena gifts that I was able to use. It wasn't just healing. Right. And, right. And, and sorry to cut you off there, but I'm curious. Uh, did these things, uh, oh, I almost dropped my uh, light bulb here. Sorry about that. Um, I was going to say, when you had these abductions, did this sort of 
extrasensory perception increase for you in terms of precognition and clairvoyance, telepathy, you know, the three major ones. Did you start well, to, did that really start to come into fruition after these events, these visits? It was always there, Michael. Oh, okay. You were always there. Okay. But what they did is they taught me how to fine tune and use it because they just had the same things going on for themselves. It wasn't the exception. It was the rule. Understood. And in terms of being a healer, when did you come to realize that you even had this gift? Oh, I don't know. I was pretty young. I really don't remember. I think it was probably 10 or 11 years old, maybe even before that. Um, there were things that, that happened that uh, I wasn't, like I said, there was no vocabulary for it, but I had these things that happened that fascinated me. I'd be chopping weeds out of the garden and noticing, you know, in the end of the day when it's getting a little darker and <laughs> I see these little bursts of light and mist rising up from the plants. So I'd lay down on the ground right there on the dirt and snip off another one and watch it happen. And then suddenly it realized, I realized that, uh, this was its life force energy. It was, it was trying to reconnect with what I had just broken because I tried to put the piece back. And the energy went between the two pieces. It's very pretty, uh, very soft colors, kind of like uh, rainbows in a mist of water, you know, that kind of thing. And I understood then that I was just, I was killing something alive, and it never really even occurred to me. So, you know, I mean, that started a whole chain of events. Animals that were hurt, you know, I'd like the dog. Dog got hurt, so I put my hands on it, saw the problem, and just imagined what it would be like if it was not hurt. And suddenly, you know, it jumped out of my arms, took off running. It wasn't hurt any longer. Um, so, yeah, the animals, you know, that's what I really started with first. And it progressed on to people later. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, yeah, the whole thing. Right. And, and faith healing was very common amongst uh, early Christians, as sure. you're aware. It's been around for all sorts of uh, centuries, even before that. But personally, I've, I've never experienced any, any sort of healing, uh, being completely honest here. So I'm kind of skeptical of the whole thing, but I'm not ruling it out completely. I like to keep an open mind. Um, well, but I'm still open know, to that. It's good to be skeptical. Don't buy into anything. No matter if it's me or anybody, you believe what your heart tells you is true. That's the important thing. You know, if you want to see some of the, um, Things that I've done, you can go on jerrywills.com. Yeah. That's my website. I understood. I, I, I get all of that. But like I said, I personally, well, for those who have been asking me, because I, I did get a, a number of emails asking me about my opinion on faith healing and all these sort of things. And I, I never denied that the universe is mysterious and all sorts of things happen that we can't truly explain. And I always go back to the case of a, a truck driver by the name of Edwin Robinson. He had a very amazing case in in his own right. Um, he was cured by lightning, it seems. Uh, apparently, he was struck back in 1980, and, and this man was um, his sight was and his sight was basically gone, and it was 
restored basically after he was struck by lightning and his doctor oh. was even amazed by this. Yeah. Well, there are some strange things, you know, the Fox, Fox TV did uh, about 11 years of uh, stories about me, which eventually led to the news director at Fox writing this book about me. It's called Healer, Jerry Will's story. It's by Rod Haberer. You get that on Amazon? Yeah. And they did all these stories. Well, that's where I was going with telling you about jerrywills.com. There are video testimonials up there, and, you know, you can watch the videos and see for yourself and make your own decision. Yeah, for sure. You know, like anything else, I mean, it, it is, <clears throat> it's like, you know, seeing a UFO. If you've never seen one, what do you think? Yeah, you know, exactly. What can you think? Yes. I'm the same yeah. way. I, I've seen strange lights in the sky. I've experienced odd things happening around me even later on in life. And that one time even with my own father. And But I, I never truly rule out that there's a perfectly rational explanation for those events. Well, and that's how you have to approach it. Right. But again, I never rule out that it could be something completely unknown. Well, you know, so far with the years now, cause I, I really, I didn't start doing this healing as a, as a profession, let's say. Right. And until I was with Kathy and she saw what I could do and she says, you know, this electronics business is all well and good, but, uh, you're supposed to be helping people. And I didn't know how, I didn't know how to make that transition, but I listened to her. She didn't know either, but we worked it out together and. Since I've been um, doing it this way, it's been 20 years, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that no longer have what they had. There are hundreds of people who are supposed to be dead who aren't. There are blind people that, you know, drove home on several occasions. Um, people that had severe issues that just evaporated. And, you know, um, I have a front row seat to this. I see it. And like yourself, you know, I have to just shake my head and go, gosh, that's, what do you think about that? Because my background is in electronics, engineering, science. I try to find a rational explanation for the things that I see and to try and come in some way. Right. To a way of understanding it so I can at least explain it to myself. But I see these things, and it's just astonishing. I just, I, there's no way that I can explain it. Yeah. I don't know what God is. I have no idea. But there must be something that is interceding in some way. And somehow I'm involved in that, and I never have really quite understood that at all. Seeing UFOs and talking to extraterrestrials, that's easily explained. Um People that are mediums, they talk to people on the other side, you know, a lot. Psychics take for granted that they just know what's going to happen. Robbie Thomas, a good friend of mine who's a psychic profiler, God, I mean, he's, he's solved so many cold cases for the police and the FBI and other agencies all over the world, and they don't know how he does it. You know, so there's, there's an unknown realm that some of us are tapped into. It's a realm where we can't explain how it works, why it works, or what process is involved. 
Right. The but, forces of the universe are extremely mysterious, even to this day. Yeah, it is. And yeah, there's still a lack of a proper vocabulary to properly address this. Yeah, we're, we're still a little bit behind in terms of what the ancients uh, seem to know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, on the subject, is there a specific process that you follow to achieve these inner visions that you have, Jerry? Oh, <laughs> there's got to be something. Yeah, there is. Ah, okay, here we go. I sit back with a cup of coffee and a cigarette. Perfect. Take a deep breath, close my eyes, and then I start seeing things. That's about it. That's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, there's no hocus-pocus or mumbo-jumbo. It's just, you know, it's just the uh, thing that I've learned that uh, things start becoming triggered and it just becomes available and possible, and then I go forward. I have a lot of people that, well, I wouldn't say a lot, a lot, but there are quite a few people that know that I smoke cigarettes. I haven't smoked pot in years. I eat it instead. That's probably healthier. It is, because 85% of what's good for you that's in cannabis is turned into soot when you're smoking it, so it's better to eat it. And I, you know, it's not like I eat a lot. What, what about the, what about the cigarettes though? I mean, you've been smoking for a while. Are you going to try to ease off? Of the, the cigs for a while. No, I don't think so. It makes me happy. It makes you happy? You're, you're fine with it? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Um, you're not you know, afraid that, of lung cancer folks, or anything like that? Nah. Nah, don't worry about that sort of thing. Most people in Asia and in Asian countries don't worry about that either, and they never get lung cancer from smoking cigarettes, it seems. Yeah. I, I, th- I think things that are going to get you are the things you're worried the most about. Yeah, there's something to that as well. You know, there's something about positive affirmation. Yeah, I agree. I acquiesce. And, you know, you start believing that something's going to do this, then it probably will. You know, I, right. I, um, I heal very quickly. Um, and I, you know, I don't worry about stuff like that. I fell out of an airplane hangar and died for Christ's sakes. I know what it's like to be dead. Not that I want to be. Yeah, you had a near-death experience, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, it was astonishing. Yeah, you know, it changed my whole perspective on things after that happened. <clears throat> and, by, and by the way, Jerry, are are you a religious individual now? Oh no, not even a little bit. Not even a little. Are you spiritual? What's going on? No, I believe in myself. Power believe- of one. Say it again. The power of one. Well, I believe that when you look in a mirror and put your finger and tap your chest and you say God lives here, that's probably the most powerful affirmation that you can make. So if you start looking inside trying to find the difference between you and God, however you conceive God to be, whatever name you decide to give God, whether creator or source or whatever, But if you try to find where you end and God begins, you're not going to find it because it's homogenous within you. So as far as being religious, you know, all this other stuff out there in the world for Pentecostals to Catholics, you know, everything in between, Um, even atheists, you know, whatever it is, if they want to believe that, that's fine. I don't care. It's just like if somebody's gay, I don't care if they're black, yellow, 
blue, green, whatever. I don't care. Because people need something to believe in. Right. And, and wherever they are in their spiritual growth, they're going to find what accommodates their level of belief, knowing, and understanding. And that's where they're going to stop because they're in their comfort zone. And my comfort zone is believing in myself. And I think that's much more empowering. It is. I agree with you, yeah. So I try to teach other people how to do that. And a lot of folks have had bad childhoods. A lot of folks have had crappy things happen in their lives, and it's really disabled them emotionally. But, you know, you can turn it around if you start believing in yourself, because no one else is going to believe in you more than what you should be able to believe in yourself. Correct. That's correct. And especially when you have some sort of issue or problem, um, nine out of ten times I I feel like I randomly just happen to get that answer. Uh, through the universe, through the signs that the universe throws at you. A lot of people miss those signs. Well, they do. And I think it mostly is because they're looking for answers somewhere else, not within themselves. People are always looking for gods under the nearest rock or the greatest church or, you know, somewhere externally. I think and you can say that almost about anything. It's, it's almost like a human, uh, maybe like a human reaction, a human, it's the human nature. Mm-hmm. To seek for something, correct? To belong. Well, yeah, everybody wants to belong. That's why people end up wearing masks. It's, because so, they in, want it's just to, so instilled in the psyche. People want to be accepted. Right. They don't want to be excluded. And they will become whatever they need to become in order to be a part of whatever they envision that they are wanting to be a part of. And a lot of people become their illness. Right. When we see it in sports, we see it in politics, we see it in every facet of our everyday living, almost. Yeah, just about everything you can imagine. Right. And the truth is, whatever you imagine yourself to be, you will become that. So, because the imagination is powerful, it's it's more valuable than knowledge. So, consequently, and thanks to Einstein for that, by the way, but, um, you know, if, if you believe that you are such and such, you know, whether it's mother, father, uh, good guy, bad guy, successful businessman or woman, you know, whatever you believe yourself to be, you will then come to where you know that that's who you are. And that is what you will become because the energies of creation that exist within you, they're going to manifest this for you. And a lot of people get lost because of this, because they lose any idea of what their true identity is, who they truly are, and they end up wearing a mask of whatever they think other people are expecting to see. I did that for a while, too, for quite a few years. I know what it feels like to take the mask off and look at yourself and put it back on again. It's a very empty feeling. And what I try to do is give people a reason to first believe in themselves because belief right. that is powerful. Yeah, and Jerry, you just reminded me of something the Japanese say about having three faces. Uh, the face you show the world and the second face you only show your close friends and family. And the third is the face you never reveal. Exactly. Wild. I'm glad you said that. You just reminded me of that. It's very clever. When you get to a point where you've believed in yourself for a period of time, You'll eventually get to the point where you know yourself. 
the problem is, is when you take off the mask, you're going to lose friends. People are going to move away from you because you're not being what they expect you to be. Right. And so there's a vacuum. What I discovered in my own life is that when this vacuum is created, the universe abhors a vacuum. And people start plugging in those holes because they think that you're pretty pretty groovy, that they like who you are. Yeah. They won't. And suddenly there's just people around you who like you for who you are, not who you're trying to be to please someone else. It was a really bit of a shocker uh, because I'd really come to understand this to some extent, but I really hadn't internalized it, I suppose. I was down at Machu Picchu during one of these trips, and uh, there was a period of time for about, I don't know, three or four years where I was meeting up with this fellow named Rich. Now, Rich was from the Pleiades, and I don't say that casually uh, because I thought it was bullshit, but he did prove that he was, and so that was good enough for me. You know, someone gets out of a UFO and says they're from somewhere. <laughs> you, you tend know. to believe him. How am I going to argue? With <laughs> right, that? right. Well, he had a heart-to-heart with me, and he said um, something to the equivalency of, you know, you're you're wearing a mask, you're not being yourself. And I said, well, yeah, I kind of, I kind of know that. He says the question you have to ask yourself is who are you trying to be and who are you trying to be this for? You know, why are you doing this to yourself? And that really threw me into a spin because I'd never asked myself that question. And I eventually had to answer it because I'm a person that likes to find answers. Right, and a lot of people never face that reality. No, they don't. They really it's don't. a scary one for them. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, this is where we talk about psychoactive ingredients that cause this self-realization. Uh, but before we do... Um, how did you meet Kathy, by the way, Jerry? When did she come into your life first? She came into my life when I was 43 years old. It was about 1996. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's a bit of a weird story. It's long. <laughs> oh. And uh, if folks are really wanting to hear this story, <clears throat> I encourage them to go to jerrywillsshow.com. I just put it up there. Uh, it's part of a series that we're putting out called Jerry and Kathy's Fantastic Journey, and the journey starts with me telling the story. Nice. I'll give, I'll give you a thumbnail sketch. Oh, okay, go ahead. Um, I was in Peru, and a whole series of things happened, way too lengthy to go into here. And I ended up meeting up with this old man, this silly old man. He was an Aymara Indian, from, or Aymara from Lake Titicaca. He was reading coca leaves, and he basically was throwing coca leaves and shaking his head and threw some more and shook his head, wrapped them up, unwrapped them, threw them in the air, threw some more coca leaves. And eventually, part of his message to me, and it was quite lengthy as well, but part of his message to me was that your electronics business is going to stop within six months. Or no, no, within a year, I'm sorry. And you're not going to be married in six months. And my question to him, through interpreters, of course, he didn't speak English. Um, And all the while I'm thinking, this guy doesn't know a thing about me. How's he he doing this? And I said, so uh, what am I supposed to do? And he says, well, there's someone waiting for you. 
waiting for you to make this this decision you've already made. Yeah, well, who is it? She says, I can't tell you her name, but she lives in the heart. And I said, in the heart? What are you talking about? She says, she has hair like gold and she lives in the heart. It's like, okay, that's too vague. What does that mean? And so he picked up a stick, like you'd find, you know, broken off a tree. He walked over to a wall. This is in a pretty rustic setting. There was a map of the U.S. on the wall. And he starts tapping around on it, and he taps right on Kansas City. And he says, here, this is where you're going to meet her. I said, looked at it and said, well, that's Kansas City. I said, I don't have any plans going to Kansas City. And he just, like, shrugged his shoulders, like, well, you know. I said, so is that where she lives? He says, no. No, that's where you meet her. So he taps around some more. Boom. Lincoln, Nebraska. He says, she lives here. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much the gist of it. Right. And I said, I have no plans of going to Nebraska. I've been to Nebraska. Don't care for it. You know, it's just not my kind of place. I don't vibe into Nebraska. And he shrugged his shoulders. Well, that's where she lives. It's like, okay, well, I guess I won't be meeting her then. Is there anyone else? Nope. She's the one. So we left and went out and got it. Well, it was Big bottles of beer at the pizza place there in Agua Caliente, just below Machu Picchu. And we proceeded to um, share that beer with a table full of other people. Um, fast forward, I get home, make the announcement, getting a separation, and I get the mail thrown or handed to me, however it happened. And they all fell on the floor except one. They got caught in my shirt. So I peeled it out of my shirt, looked at it. I had a voucher for a room and the confirmation of me being a speaker at this event in Kansas City and tickets. And it was going to happen in like, I don't know, a week or two. It's like, well, huh, that's weird. I don't remember anything about this. So I went to Kansas City and things were so bad in my home environment that I was just a, a nervous wreck. It was really, really ugly. So I wasn't thinking about it very much, if at all. I did my lecture, went back to the table. I didn't have anything to sell. I was just at an empty table. <laughs> I know just that. Just sitting there. I know that feeling. I try to avoid it. And uh meeting people after the lecture and so forth, and people finally died off, went their own ways. And up walks this gal. Um She walks up. And she sticks out her hand. She says, hi, I'm Kathy. And I said, hi, I'm Jerry. And I grabbed her hand and shake to shake it. And instantly, there was nothing in the entire universe except her and I looking at each other. There was no sound. There was nothing. It was just like everything evaporated into the darkness. And we're standing in this spotlight with this electricity running down my arm like I could never even begin to describe. And it took my breath away, and it just keeps going and going and going until finally someone says something, and she pulls her hand back and looks over, and there's her friend, uh, Twyla. And then another conversation occurs, and uh, she walks off. And in my head, I heard a voice say, she's the one. It's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> yes. She, I don't even know who she is. Well, obviously, it worked out because we're married now. But um 
she lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I met her in Kansas City. And she has hair like gold. Kansas yeah. is for lovers. Yeah, I guess. My goodness. That's it was good. an extraordinary ex- experience. Yeah, that's a really good experience to have. And you've been happily married ever since. Have. It's been 20 years this year. And, uh, maybe 21, I'd forgotten. But we've just had one conversation since we got together. But it, it's just one conversation that's never stopped. And it's been, uh, amazing to think it's 20 years because, my God, you know, it's like it, it's not been any time at all, really. So it's a pretty trippy thing. It really is. It really is. And of course, you also go out to Peru, which is a very enigmatic and mysterious place, rather, filled with uh, tremendous megalithic stone structures. I personally never been there, but well, you should come with us in September, Michael. Well, I would love to. Why don't you come with us? Yeah, you know, I've never been there, but I've always been fascinated by all the stone structures they have out there. Very, very interesting. Very just completely mind-boggling that this this huge stone out of nowhere is just there. Yeah, we've seen a lot more than most people have ever seen. If if, if folks like this sort of thing or you like this sort of thing, go to expeditions.tv. Spell with an X, not E-X. But expeditions. Dot TV. We have uh, a whole bunch of videos up there that are free right now. Everybody can go watch them if they want to. Yes, and how long have you been going to Peru, by the way? Well, I started in the early 90s, and Kathy started um, about 97, 98, right in there. Uh, so it's been at least 20 years for Kathy and I together, and there was, I don't know, quite a few years, four, five, six years you know, before that. Yeah, you guys go out there quite a bit. Yeah, we we know it really well. <laughs> At least we know the places we know really well. This uh this is a strange strange place. It's a very strange place. It's of course it, its popularity definitely um well, the more recent years, I have to say, their popularity really just skyrocketed after um Ancient Aliens. Mhm. Yeah. And Ancient Aliens really hasn't even scratched the surface of the things that we found. I mean, they really have done a good job, no doubt about it. But um, there's a lot more strange stuff, a whole lot of it. Just like, you know, this next trip, this next trip is going to be full of adventure. You know, our, our trips are not like, you know, you go on a tour and you're going to go here, there, and here, and there. And it's like you have this, you know, it's boring. <laughs> it is to me anyway. So what we do is we turn it into an adventure so that everybody is part of the adventure. And because of that, uh, we do things that people don't do. We go places people normally don't go and sometimes probably shouldn't go, but we go there anyway. Nice. Like on this next trip, there are places we're going to go that we probably shouldn't, but we're going to. Uh, and because of that, we see things that no one else ever sees. We have experiences no one else ever has. And it's, it's a great deal of fun. And I love the adventure part of it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And by the way, you've never been on the program, Ancient Aliens, or have you? Uh-uh. No, never been invited. That's weird. I 
I would have imagined you would have got that uh, invite already by now. Well, you know, it's the same thing with conferences. I don't get invited to conferences. Um, I don't get invited to, <laughs> well, ancient aliens. You know, they did this story about those uh, Peruvian mummies. Uh, Gaia TV did something about it, <clears throat> and people have been talking about it. Well, we already knew about it, and the people at uh, Gaia knew that we were, I mean, we didn't just go to Peru. We've lived there for years, Kathy and I. So, you know, we we have a real in, and we know things that we don't talk about, and these mummies were one of those. But even though that's the case, you know, we don't get invited to uh, be a part of any of that. So you know, we just say tech with them, you know, we just go do our own thing. And- Understood. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I just thought um, I would actually have had seen you at one point or another on that program. I guess I'm going to have to uh, talk to William Henry about this. Oh, yeah. Well, tell him I said hi when you do. I'm going to have to yell at him. Yeah. A lot of these folks know me or they know who I am. And it might be because, you know, I've made that comment that I'm not from here. That it, Oh, um, I see. Maybe turns them off. You know, there's but, a lot, there, there's a lot of theories on that program that I don't exactly believe myself to be perfectly blunt with you. Yeah. Well, I've seen some of it. I'm not a big, I'm not a big watcher. Um, yeah. I hear you. So, you know, like when they went to the doorway at Arumuru. Yeah. Marumuru, a very just, my God, breathtaking location and the, uh, the, the stories that run rampant uh, for the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Uh, that guy Pedro that told me about Kathy, he gave me these tones, told me all about Aramuru, and it's a doorway, and you activate it with sound. So he gave me the tones. I thought it was just a bunch of hooey. So Kathy and I went there together shortly after we were married, and I just kept going for it, making the tones louder and louder, and finally. I must have hit the right combination because it opened and swallowed me right into it. Kathy saw me glow, and then I disappeared. And then uh, I went somewhere else. And the folks on the other side, I guess they took pity on me because I was freaked out. <laughs> I had to get back to Kathy. We just got married. You know, I, I can't stay here. How do I get back home? Yeah. So they showed me how to get back. And I got back. I was gone for hours and hours, wherever it was I went. But when I got back, I'd only been gone for like two minutes. Enough for Kathy to be totally freaked out and everybody else that was standing around watching this too. Of course. But uh it really gave me the resolve to never try to do that kind of thing again. It was just a little bit too much. But the point is about ancient aliens. When they went there talking about it, um, I don't know. They, they turn it into kind of a circus act. It's kind of goofy. No, I'm with you on that one. Some of the things I just have trouble believing completely at times. Well, they were sitting there with bowls, you know, the Tibetan bowls, and they were ringing the bowls, and they weren't even sitting near the doorway. The shot, whoever those guys were doing the bowls, they knew better. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, you know, they even did an episode on, I believe, zombies at one time. Oh, well, I hadn't seen that. Maybe you don't want to see that. Probably not. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. It might, it might mess with my brain or something. <laughs> I think so too. And, and by the way, I must say this. 
Um, I was looking at your website earlier and I saw the photo of you with, with, with long hair. And I have to say, you kind of resemble, uh, this other gentleman. I think he's from Arizona. You might even know him, uh, Drunvalo Malkizadek. Oh, I know Drunvalo. You know him. Yeah. I haven't seen him in years. I haven't, we were I haven't heard. Oh, you were friends with him. I haven't heard him interviewed in a long time. No, I, I haven't even, I haven't even been able to talk to him and Jesus, this would be 20 years. I, holy hell, that yeah, long? Like, yeah. Wow. But we were, we were friends for a while. It was, it was a good friendship. Oh, I had no idea. I know a lot of people and a lot of people seek me out, you know, the movie stars and people in government and common people all over the world. Yeah. I know a lot of folks and it's kind of cool. You know, usually I'm able to help them. It wasn't to help drum, drum below at all. That wasn't the whole point of that, but, um, I don't even know where I was going with that. I guess I was just sort of losing my consciousness. <laughs> don't worry. I'll, I'll bring you back to it. And I believe there is a caller joining us now. Um, let, let's see what the caller has to say. Caller, are you there? Uh, caller, can you hear me? Caller. And maybe he's not with us. Good evening. Oh, wait, there he is. Now I hear him. Yeah, good evening. What's going on? How are you tonight? Fantastic. Is this Chefist? Uh-oh. May I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. Ask away. Or maybe not. Well, moving along here, I'm sorry about that. I thought he was going to talk. And I guess he got cold feet. Something. Technical difficulties, perhaps. Yeah, I, I heard him for a good moment there. Mm-hmm. Ah. Oh, well. Well, running along here, you also take these ayahuasca trips. Yeah, actually, we offer that as part of the uh, package. Ayahuasca, the um, uh, the active ingredient in ayahuasca is dimethyltryptamine, which is a naturally occurring compound in the brain. It's responsible for the ability to have cognizance, to be able to speak, to recognize what other people are saying when they speak, to have tactile functions, see and understand. I mean, everything is tied to this. They call it the spirit molecule, but it is directly responsible for uh, the ability to not just be conscious, but to actually be aware. So when you use ayahuasca, you drink it down um, and it gets into your system. When ayahuasca hits your system, it kind of ramps up. It isn't an altogether unpleasant experience, but um, it's a bit disorienting at first to get used to it. Uh, but it essentially turns on the ability for your DNA to receive or send light up to 100%. Now, there's 225 billion miles stretched out into end, 225 billion miles of DNA. And it works faster than thought. And its primary mode of communication is light. And uh, when you're using ayahuasca, you go into the spiritual realm. And sometimes there are teachers there to teach you. Sometimes you travel to other places. Usually, most people do this because they're wanting to gain this uh, sacred or hidden knowledge. Um, some people do it because they want to be healed. And ayahuasca is a master healer as well. 
It lasts about three, maybe four hours. You go off to sleep, you wake up the next morning, and you're refreshed and you're back to normal again. Except that you never forget what you experienced. Uh, you remember everything you learned, for example. If you were healed, you, you remember the process that was going on that allowed you to become healed. So you, you retain complete knowledge about whatever it was that took place. It's very powerful. We have a shaman down there. His name is Mateo. Good guy. I've known him the whole time I've ever been going to Peru. And he's one of the most uh, amazing shaman I've ever met. And he's the one that shows up for our groups uh, to do the ayahuasca ceremony. And, you know, people sometimes do this in other places, whether it's in Europe or the United States, sometimes Central America. But I think ayahuasca should be done in the jungle. It's where it comes from, and the energy is the most potent there. So, you know, you're in this primal energy to begin with. You do ayahuasca. I think you get a lot more benefit from doing it in the jungle, in the Amazon. Right, and that's interesting that you actually go and, and take these trips with – um you take these tours, rather, and you go on this amazing journey. And before I go further, I believe there's another call. Sure. Yeah, let's try to patch them in here. Let's see. Caller, are you there this time? Caller. I think I'm sort of hearing him now. Mm-hmm. Good evening. Oh, there you are. Yes. Yeah. Mr. Will. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, Mr. Hi. Will. How are you? Interviewed. Good, sir. You seem to be a very open-minded man, uh, accepting of all cultures and traditions. Uh, am I correct? Yeah, I do. I don't. Okay. Tr- I, I'm. I don't. I'm curious why you have such an animus towards people from Nebraska. Ha <laughs> Well. <laughs> That seems so to be a rather generalized statement. I don't really have any animus for folks in Nebraska. Actually, I, I have people there I love very dearly. But um, why did you, you know, say that? What What happened is that I lived in Nebraska, North Platte, for I don't know winter, and I'd never owned a car before. And here I was, 21 years old, my first car, and of course my background you probably heard i didn't mention i was never allowed to drive anything so here i had my own car i had my own driver's license everything was wonderful and it's winter in nebraska was really damn cold there and no one had thought to tell me that antifreeze was necessary and i was driving this car it was kind of a beater but it was my car um an old plymouth belvedere with push button transmission Black. Look like you'd been in a hailstorm twice. Nice. Is that the fault of the people of Nebraska, sir? No, not at all. It's my own fault. My animus towards Nebraska was because it's so darn cold. You see, when I arrived here, I was frostbitten over most of my body, and so cold weather hurts me very badly. So I try to avoid being in a very cold place. Thus, I'm living in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's just you know five miles from the gates of hell. But um, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, as far as the animus about Nebraska goes. The reason I wouldn't go back to Nebraska is because I didn't want to get that cold and have to walk as far as I had to walk <laughs> when the engine seized up from freezing. And so, consequently, uh, going back to Nebraska was not high on my list of um, 
places to ever revisit. But the people so of Nebraska you, uh, are fantastic. You have no animus to the people of Nebraska. You uh, have an animus to the climate of Nebraska. Yes, yes. It's, it's much too um, difficult for me to bear. Yeah. Do you think maybe next time when you say that you could uh, clarify, maybe? I probably Instead should. Saying, I, don't, I don't like Nebraska. <laughs> are you from Nebraska, by the way? Um, no, uh, my fam, part of my family is. And, and the reason why I bring this up is it's very important to understand that when you say, I just don't like this place or that place, especially when you start to say, I don't like the people from that place, then, you know, you got to kind of clarify, you know, mm-hmm. you don't like this place, you don't like why the weather, uh, the weather never came up earlier, you know, just to say, you know, just something to throw out there. As it were. Ha! That reminds you know? me, yeah. I, I say that about Florida all the time. There you go. Right. There you go. I don't want an alligator to eat me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, God love you. God bless you guys. Have my a good goodness. night. Take care, my <laughs> friend. Love you. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night. That was great. Thanks for the call. I didn't hear his name. Oh, yes. That that was um Shepist, as we call him. Ah, good. Okay. Well, Shephas, thank you for that. That great was guy. wonderful. He's a great guy. He he truly is. And, yes, going back to the spirit world, yes, psychedelics mm-hmm. have played a just a tremendous role, in my opinion. And, you know, going back to ayahuasca and dimethyltryptamine, I had a friend who was really into his psychedelics, and he tried to get me to smoke DMT one time, and I told him, I'm not ready for that sort of thing, my friend, because I I don't think I would want to cross into the spirit world that quickly. Well, you know, I I have a nephew that smoked DMT in front of me. I wanted to watch what happened to his energy field when he smoked it. A good, what happened? That's a good good um um experiment there. Yeah, it was like a bright flash, all these colors, and it stayed like that with lots of color and expansion, and then uh, within a short amount of time, it just collapsed back, kind of went a little dark, and then it came back normal, and it was over for him. It was a very strange thing. It smelled terrible. I don't think that's how to really experience ayahuasca, smoking DMT. Uh, in my opinion, there's only one way to do it, and that would be to have a shaman present who holds the energy and the space to protect you and protect you from whatever, uh spirit realm, perhaps, uh, or just to be there to help you if you need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, when you do it in a place like the Amazon, you're doing it the way it's been done for thousands of years. This isn't a new practice for them. It's something that's been handed down uh, father to son over the course of, you know, a thousand generations or more. So they know what they're doing. You know, distilling it out and getting the DMT and igniting it and inhaling the vapors from it. And I suppose that there's a place in the world for that. If people want to do it, I'm certainly not going to judge them. But I, I don't think that's the way to do it. It's my own opinion. Right. I hear you. And uh, a group of friends of mine who did it, they all experienced this strange trip. They all claimed to have seen indigenous people dancing when they were high on this stuff. I'm not surprised. It's really odd. It's really strange. There's something about 
about that that connects us all together, which just further validates my belief that we are all one. Mm-hmm. Well, and also understand that when you're in that realm, there isn't any time and there isn't any distance. It's almost like being at a point of source, and wherever you go is wherever your mind is directed to, whether you direct it or it's directed by whatever is accompanying you to help you. Um, and it's kind of that way when I'm working on people doing this uh, this healing thing. You know, I work on people all over the world, and they want to know how is it you can just suddenly be here. And because there's no time, there's no distance, and the work that I do, uh, I've gotten used to being an alpha a lot and uh, being able to travel great distances to work with folks, you know, just wherever they might be. Right. And by the way, is this dangerous for those who want to embark on this journey, the spiritual journey rather, and partake on the sacred ayahuasca ceremony? It can be life-threatening if you don't do it right. People have died doing this. But the reason they died is because they went out to the witch's market, which is a market in Cusco, and they might buy some ayahuasca from one of the vendors there because you can get it. Or <clears throat> there are certain medications you should not be using if you're going to use ayahuasca, like an MAO inhibitor. Um, or, you know, you know, this, uh, let's say that Juan is your guide and you want a shaman. Oh, I know a shaman, senor. He's, uh, let me call him up and he'll come. The yeah, guide that's dressed up like a shaman. It's and, funny you say that because the, friend of mine got it from a shaman in Mexico. Uh-huh. But I won't say how that was transported, of course, but yes, it made its way <laughs> to here in America. <laughs> yeah. Shocking, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of tin cup shaman out there because you can make money doing this, hundreds of dollars per person if you, if oh, you yeah. wanted to. There's a market for that. <clears throat> so, and these people are so abjectly poor. I mean, really, really poor. And this is just a method for them to make a few hundred bucks, which is a, a fortune to them. And whether you live or die is not their concern. They give it to you. And uh, they sing a song and play a flute, and then you're off on your journey, and they get up and leave, and you wake up without your wallet and uh, your belongings, and you're looking around going, if you're still alive, going, gosh, you know, I feel really sick. Well... That is the bad side of it. But if it's done correctly, with a real shaman, with someone who cares about what happens and who has a reputation for being a shaman, who has a background like Mateo, he started when he was seven years old. And now he's uh, like 60-something. They're going to know what they're doing. And they're doing it for uh, a reason. And it isn't just because of money that's involved. They make, you know, Mateo, he doesn't charge hardly anything. But, uh, you know, he flies from deep in the Amazon to Iquitos and comes to the lodge and stays there for a week. And, uh, you know, he's doing it as a service to people to help them to evolve spiritually, which is really what this is all about. It really is. It really is. And of course, when you have taken this, when you taken this, uh, ayahuasca, my friend, did you talk to the entities? Oh, I've, I've used it, I don't know how many times. Let's just say 20 times. I know it's probably less than that. I think Kathy's done it more than I have. 
And yeah, you know, I've, uh, I've seen some amazing things. I've learned some amazing things and I've met up with spiritual beings on the other side doing this and learned from them. Um, one of the things that people would notice about my radio shows, one of the, uh, we have three of them. And one yeah, let's, called, let's talk about that. I forgot all about it. Yeah. It's called the cafe at the end of the universe. And, you know, this is how that came into being is, uh, through ayahuasca. I went to this other place and I met with these people and I called it the cafe at the end of the universe. And so now I have a radio show, actually a TV show that's, uh, it's called that. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, another one of those shows on Monday night, I think. So, yeah. Um, what would you like to know about it? Yeah. When exactly did you start your radio show? And have you always been, I guess you could say, interested or influenced at all by other radio shows, perhaps mainstream radio shows? Is that a possibility here? Well, you know, the the big influence I had was when I met Kevin Smith. I just didn't have time for it. Um, but I really admired Kevin Smith. He was really a preeminent broadcaster, had his own <clears throat> uh, show. It was nightly, five nights a week. And that's not the comedian, by the way, in case those were wondering. Yeah, yeah. Comedian writer. Kevin, right. Kevin Smith was a commander in the... um in the world, what was it called? World Army or something. He worked for the State Department. Um, anyway, he was out of that and he started broadcasting. He was in there doing that, living all over the world. And, um, anyway, he kept it up after he got out and he had just this fantastic show. Well, everyone has always said, I have a great voice. You for do. Broadcasting. You really do. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Michael. You do too, by the way. Ah, you thank do you. quite good. Well, Kevin asked me if I would take over for him for a week. And so I assembled everything I needed to assemble. You know, I knew technically how to do it. And I did it. And it was, oh, what a mess. The first couple of shows were just a mess. Oh, like the hang of it. Yeah, you, you learned though along the way how to go. Yeah, exactly. So I really got a taste of it, and uh, off and on I would help Kevin. After he died, um, he told me hours before he died, he says, if anything happens to me, you're the only person I trust to take over my show and only do it uh, to the point you feel you can. And if you don't feel you can, then don't do it at all. So I tried. I took over, and it was a big mess. For a lot of reasons, and it wasn't because I couldn't do it, but because there were people that were, you know, the, I don't know, there's just weird people that were involved with that whole mess uh, towards the end of Kevin's life. So I put it on the shelf, and then I tried doing it again. And it was just radio, you know. It was just uh, like you and I are doing right now, just audio content only. And then uh, I decided last December that I wanted to do a show. And I talked to Kathy, and she said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So we started assembling the pieces. And it took us about four months to get all of the uh, equipment, because we've got a crazy amount of equipment in here, and more is coming on Monday. Um, yeah, you have a you very know, nice setup, actually. Yeah, thank you. 
And we're, we're getting in the, uh, compressors and limiters, noise gates and all that jazz. It's coming nice. on Monday or Tuesday, I think now. Anyhow, um, and I started doing this thing, uh, because it needs to pay for itself, you know. There needs to be some remuneration after all the money we spent to put this together. Oh, it's expensive so, to maintain. Yeah, it is. You know, it's not cheap. And of course, I only, my, my goal is if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And it's going to be with the best equipment, at least up to the point that I can afford the best equipment. So, um, you know, got 4K cameras, three of them. We have uh, a bunch of Sennheiser microphones and lighting grid and computers and gigantic monitors. It's, I, I'm surprised how big these monitors are. They didn't look that big in the, uh, you know, when I was looking at them online. And uh, mixers and switchers and all kinds of gadgets here. All kinds of buttons. Yeah. And so we decided the way we were going to finance this was to put it on Patreon. Other people had done it, and I'd been on Regina Meredith uh, on Gaia TV a number of times, and Regina was doing something on Patreon, so I took a look. I mean, she's really good, and if she says it's good, then it must be. And as it turns out, it worked out quite well. Uh, we have, uh, I think, five different levels of patronage. It's like $2, and you get uh, to watch the show live, and you get into the archives. Five dollars, you get all of that, plus you get into the vault. The vault is where we put things that no one has ever seen before. And by that, I mean some really strange stuff that uh, I've accumulated over the years. And then uh, it goes up uh, $10, $15, $25, and $100. And surprisingly, there are people in the $100 category and a whole lot of people in all the other categories. And, you know, we... For these different categories, there, there, there are perks. And these perks are, well, you'd have to read it really, because there's just all these different things to get a phone call from us on our sat phone. And that's what we did. We were down in the middle of the Amazon and we whipped out the sat phone, started calling our supporters right there from the jungle. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, it was. It was very groovy. Um, we picked up, um, a bunch of, Handmade bracelets from an Indian tribe, uh, in the, in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Sent those out to folks. We sent them postcards. Uh, they get their name into credits, uh, discounts on trips. And there's just all kinds of things that we have in there. And, uh, lo and behold, the whole thing started working and the show was paying for itself because of this. So. Uh, you know, the shows that we have, there are three of them. One is what I mentioned earlier, which is called Jerry and Kathy's Fantastic Journey. And that's going to be, it, it just started. Uh, the first episode is up there now. And that's how I came to the point where I met Kathy. It's the very long version of what I told you just a few minutes ago. The other show, and of course that is going to go through 20 years because we have 20 years of of adventures, <laughs> running from terrorists and death squads coming for us, and machine guns pulled on us and trapped in the jungle, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff. That yeah, it sounds happened. like fun. It was a trip. It really was. Yeah. And then the other show is the Jerry Wells show where I'm doing interviews like you are with me now and except just with video. 
And uh, then the third show is called The Cafe at the End of the Universe, which is uh, where I'm interviewing people who have uh, different spiritual or psychic gifts, you know, just different things to uh, talk about. And we never advertise who's going to be on there because when you're at the cafe, you never really know who's going to show up. So I try to keep it true to that theme. I like that, though. I like that mystery there. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I accidentally broadcast. <laughs> I had the amazing Ron on. Ron is a palmist. And he is truly an extraordinary fellow, lives in New Orleans. Uh, been a friend of ours for many, many years. And I had him on uh, last Monday night, and he had trouble connecting in. Well, I shut down the system, rebooted the computers, thinking maybe it was on my end. Got back up online very quickly, and I accidentally broadcast everything live on Facebook on my profile. Well, <laughs> the broadcast was supposed to only be for, uh, you know, the supporters. Oh, I see. But now here I'm seeing in the, ch in the chat, I mean, people can do the chat thing on Facebook, of course, and I'm seeing hundreds and hundreds of people watching and all these, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? How is this possible? And I just didn't know it was confusing me. Well, I'd made the mistake, but we ended up with, um, by the end of the night, like 1,100 people uh, that were tuned in and participating. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I was surprised. Some good numbers yeah. there, especially live. Yeah. Well, I did one just a couple nights ago and um, took a look at it just before I came on with you. Uh, when I got done, it was at 800, and now it's uh, approaching 1,000. And it was just an unannounced, just for the moment broadcast that I did. So it's it's interesting. You yeah, know, you got a it, following out there. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I seem to have. I don't know why, but I'm grateful for it. And uh, by the way, we are joined by another uh, soul right now. Uh, Star, go ahead. Hello. Hello, Star. What's going on? Oh, hi. Um, I wanted to ask. Hello, Jerry. Hi. How you doing, Star? Pretty good. I wanted to ask you. You have the. Uh, uh, cafe at the end of the restaurant? No, it's cafe at the end of the universe. I, I'm sorry, at the end of the universe. Uh, because that sounds very much like, um, a Douglas Adams, uh, one of the hitchhiker guides to the galaxy trilogies with the restaurant at the end of the universe. Uh, are you familiar with Douglas Adams? Oh yeah, I am. I, oh. I well, I saw the movie. I've never read the books. My favorite part was Don't Panic. I have one of those oh. <laughs> buttons that's yellow with red letters on it. Oh, okay. I'm just wondering whether you knew anything about Douglas himself. He was such a character. No, not much at all, except what I saw on the movie, and I'm sure there wasn't anything about him anyway. Oh, okay. Because it's, well, I won't ruin it for you. If you have a chance to read the uh, the trilogy, which is actually four books, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you'll find them very enjoying and Pretty much, you'll find between the lines, it kind of moves into what you were talking about earlier. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it's, and I'm very much of the, uh, form follows thought school. Uh, I'm just not really good at implementing it sometimes, but, you know, that's my bad. I don't blame anybody else for it. 
Oh, well, just keep plugging away. Yeah, what else can you do? Okay, I just wanted to find out uh, whether you knew him. No, I didn't. Sorry. But thanks okay. for the call, Star. Oh, don't be sorry. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there goes Star. And we are coming to a close here, the final stretch. Uh, Jerry, but before I do let you go, I totally forgot to bring up this character's theme to you. I was curious what your thoughts were on Eric Von Daniken. You know, I, I don't, I've never met him. I've never talked to him. But when I was uh, growing up, I found his books in the library and I started reading them. And he was instrumental in my quest to go to South America to see these things for myself. Oh, very nice. Very nice, yes. Um, a very important figure for all of these things. And mm -hmm. um, another thing I did wonder about was what exactly was your mindset before 2012 and how the media was really pushing for this doomsday event that never came? Well, I was watching that with kind of a grin. Um, I knew that there was nothing that was going to happen. Um, I'd already looked into the Maya and studied as by that time I was, you know, pretty well versed in it. So I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. We, we've been seeing lots of people predict these doomsday events throughout the years. And uh, why, why is it that we see so much of that, Jerry? This, because, doom, and, this doom and gloom attitude. I think because, uh, Fear is the one motivating thing aside from love that gets the heart racing. And, uh, you know, if there's something scary or frightening, uh, then that's going to get a lot of attention because most of our society is predicated on things involving fear and apprehension. That's what we've been taught from an early age. If you don't do this, you know what's going to happen. And we got instilled with this kind of a concept early on. Yes, course, we, we have, certainly. For me, I knew what was going to happen anyway, so it didn't matter. Yes, and Jerry, we definitely are coming to a close here, and I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. We'll definitely have to touch base again in the very near future. Absolutely, Michael. You know, I really thank you for having me on. It's a real privilege to be on your show. Oh, thank you very much. I definitely would like to get deeper into some of the subjects we did tonight, but of course, time is always not on our side. No, I understand that. But anytime, let's stay in touch, Michael. We definitely will. And of course, go ahead and plug anything you'd like. The floor is yours. Well, folks, if you want to find out more about um, anything I've talked to you about tonight, there are two websites you can visit, actually three. One is um, thejerrywillshow.com. The other one is jerrywills.com. And the third one is the Adventure uh, Videos Expeditions.tv, spelled with an X, not an EX. Very, very good. And, of course, you could find his book at Amazon.com. If you are curious about our guest tonight, that's Jerry Wills. Great, great guest. And, Jerry, again, you were fantastic, and I can't wait to do part two with you. Whenever you're ready, Michael. Perfect. All right, Jerry, going to cut you loose here. All right. Have a great night, and thank you. All right, my friend. Mahalo. Mahalo. And there he goes. 
That's Jerry Wills, folks. You can check out his show, The Jerry Wills Show. Pretty good program. I do like it. I encourage all of you to check it out. And when I return, part two will commence. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here with me. Still, I hope you enjoyed the music. That's one of the reasons why I love doing this show here live. And of course, you could find this program on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network where you'll be hearing the music quite often here. And for a long duration of time, I get lost in the music here. I apologize for those long breaks I take. It's a habit. I'm so sorry. So very sorry. And what a tremendous week it's been in a recent turn of events this week. We got to wake up to headlines of Anthony Bourdain's suicide. Suicide is coming back strong. There's plenty of things to discuss here. Don't forget, if you missed last week's episode, that, of course, is up on YouTube and over at MichaelDeacon.com. Check that out. Now, here we are in the second half of the program. This is where we let our hair down and discuss the things you really care about. And I certainly do appreciate all of you out there for still being here throughout that little break. Now, as usual, there are some emails to go over. This time I promise to go over them, and I apologize greatly for not getting back to those great men and women who wrote in to me. Also, got some news here, and I'll go over that, and we'll add some social commentary to those things here, and of course, I can't say this enough, don't be afraid to call in. All of your opinions are wanted and needed. That number is 760-332-8724. One more time, 760-332-8724. You could jump in here anytime. I'll be more than happy to follow your lead here. And of course, this week has been pretty good. Pretty good for all of us, except for those who didn't make it. Looking at you, Anthony Burdain. He took his own life this week. Suicide. That's what he chose. Suicide is always a weird topic for me. It's always a weird thing to discuss here on the program. I always found it quite difficult for me to have any sorrow for those who actually commit the act. I guess he did the deed inside a French hotel. Only half of people who died by suicide had diagnosed mental health conditions. While many cases of mental illness may have been diagnosed, the CDC also noted that relationship stress financial troubles, and substance abuse were contributing to the trends. The suicide of fashion designer Kate Spade, who died this week at age 55 and the death of, of course, Anthony Bourdain, are capturing headlines and making people wonder if certain groups such as middle-aged men and women may be more at risk. Middle-aged adults had the largest number of suicides and a particularly high increase in suicide rates. I, of course, sympathize for his family and those who he left behind. I believe he had a wife and a 12-year-old daughter. I don't see life through his eyes, so I don't know what he was going through. The conspiracies surrounding his death are out there already. He battled heroin addiction. Anthony Bourdain was a junkie. I have lots of issues with Folks who commit these acts and destroy their own families and disrespect and disregard their fans. If I'm wrong, please let me know and tell me why. Should we feel sorry for him? I want to hear from you. I only have so much room in my heart for heroin junkies. 
I only have so much room in my heart for heroin junkies. Looking at you, Artie Lang, I of course like my rock stars to do heroin. It seems to bring out some sort of creative flow. That's awful, right? Val Kilmer wrote some sort of Facebook post about Anthony Bourdain saying that it was a selfish act to take his own life. Rose McGowan went wild in a video after discovering Bourdain's demise. Suicide is awful, and many people around the globe experience these dark thoughts in their heads, and some people actually follow through. Yikes. And I'm looking at the chat room. Hmm, yes, I'll go over that in a second here, Star. The conspiracy surrounding his death, yeah, we've been hearing them already. Honestly, my God, it's a little silly, to be honest with you. Some individuals out there seem to follow that notion. Speculating is always fun. I don't truly believe he was murdered. I really don't. I believe in one of the tweets that people are actually speculating about is when he tweeted out, and I am in no way a HRC fan. I've been on the receiving end of her operative's wrath. And it ain't fun. This goes back to May 2nd. I really don't believe he was whacked, however. Even if you believe there are connections there. I don't know. I really don't know what connections are there, to be honest with you. Of course, he was an Emmy winner, whose popular CNN program... Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, of course, was in production in France during the time of his death. And, of course, he battled heroin addiction. He even said, I just like heroin. It feels really good, but I can't do it anymore. Of course, he set that back in 2001. Apparently, he has a very long history. A very, very long, dark history. Anthony was a junkie. I have lots of issues with folks who commit these acts and destroy their own families and those who love them. Kind of disrespect and disregard your own fans once you commit that act. But I don't know for sure if he was murdered at all. I, I just don't see it that way. Let's keep the ball moving here, though, folks. Plenty of other things to talk about that aren't that dark. There's one issue that I did want to address really quickly here, and not quite sure how long I'm going to take. However, I feel like I got to say something here about this issue. There was an interview I did with Chris O'Brien. That was one of my favorite episodes. Chris gave everyone a good thrashing. It was pretty remarkable. I think he burned every bridge there there is or was. It was good radio. I was entertained. I loved it. Hell, I thought I even found myself a new co-host. It was fantastic. I tried contacting Chris, by the way, but he has not returned any of my emails. So I take that as a sign that I might have uh, caused him some sort of issue. But that's all right. You have to understand, folks. Once that little red button is, is uh, turned on... Right here on that board, that means it's all fair and game. It's open season. Anyways, that comment section of that episode for over a year now has been active. I brought in Gene Steinberg, the main host of the uh, Paracast. And you know it wasn't a good listen. It was kind of boring. It was not a very good show. 
I had to do my best to carry him through the whole interview because it was awful. So I had to trash him a little bit uh, during that interview. I thought that was actually kind of fun. I turned a very boring interview into something somewhat entertaining. Not easy to do. So I trashed him a bit on the air. And I don't even dislike the guy. I actually do like him. I had fun, though. At the very end, I made the best out of that situation. And, of course, there's been drama going on back and forth between uh, Chris O'Brien and Gene Steinberg. And, of course, their listeners got into it and have been making all sorts of crazy comments for over a year now. For over a year now, they've just been going at it like savages. And I typically wouldn't do that for anyone, but he did want me to delete some of the comments that people were making. He was getting harassed. It got to a point I thought, lines have been crossed. The line was crossed a tad bit there. I wish to remain free from all those strange beefs those guys have. I've got my own toy to play with, so I'll be moving away from that noise. And, of course, I got some emails this week. Got a few people to thank here. And looking at the chat room, Chef is uh, definitely call in or anyone if you want to jump in here. That number is 760-332-8724. One more time, 760-332-8724. Or on Skype, end of days Mike all together there, one word, end of days Mike. So, yeah, if you want to call in, please feel free to do so. There's all sorts of things that were said during that episode. But Chris O'Brien, go back and listen to that episode. That was the most entertaining episode we've had in a long time. It was good. Very, very good. So, moving forward here, let's get to an email before I forget. This one comes in from... Who is this person here? I'm not even quite sure, but I'll read it anyways. It says... Well, thanks, Michael. I was very surprised you mentioned me and answered my question during your show last week. Great show with Jim Fetzer. You only got a few words in after he started. And yeah, Jim Fetzer, the last time he was here, he he really was energized. He was pumped. And usually that's the way he is, but the last time he was on here, he was really fired up. Very animated. Made for a pretty good interview. He'll be back on uh, eventually. That's one of the next questions I was asked here. When will he return? I'll try to bring him in perhaps maybe the middle or end of next month. I'd like to give him a little bit of time before I bring him back in here. So, yes, he goes on to say, I've never heard anybody ask him to elaborate more about critical thinking, which is what he taught a class on. Most people are so asleep or conditioned to shut out any kind of different explanations other than the mainstream narrative. It gets very frustrating to merely talk about these subjects with people that have their head in the sand. And I agree. I agree. He goes on to say, believe me, I've been Socratic with my questions, but I still get ridiculed. I think it'd be awesome to question him for each subject he talks about. And uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. And if if you recall, in some of those previous interviews I've done with him, I've actually questioned him quite a bit. So go back and listen to those earlier interviews. And uh, yeah, he goes on to say, 
rather than his normal script, don't get me wrong, his normal script is good, maybe next time you have him on, you could drive the conversation towards how he arrives at his conclusions and focus on the critical thinking part of it, because most people don't think it out that far. They're told what to think. Thank you for your time, Michael. I really like the intro to your show. Ah, yes. Well, thank you for that. And, yeah, once again, go back to those previous episodes, and you'll see that I actually had addressed those issues. And Phoenix in the chat room is asking, speaking of which, does anyone know what happened to Tracy Twyman? You know, Phoenix, it is interesting that you bring her up. I sent her an email perhaps two, three days ago asking her if she wants to appear on the program again. She's actually very, very fascinating and a great guest. Now, going back to that email, of course, we often face ridicule for those who have no concept of a lot of the things that we talk about here on the program. It's not their fault. We simply cannot judge or fault them for their perspective. Next time he's on, I think you should call in and talk to Jim. He loves callers, so definitely call in. You'd be happy to conversate with you further, opposed to just email form. And I think you're a sharp individual, and I'm happy you're a listener of mine. I won't ever run off if I'm approached like uh, Alex Jones was when that fan of his popped in out of nowhere. It was a good time. Did you guys happen to see that video? Oh, my goodness. If you haven't, you must. Alex Jones meets some sort of random fan at some bar. And he hightails it out of there. It was, it was fantastic. Check that video out. I've actually been in a few situations like that where I was ID'd. Kind of strange, actually. I was at some coffee house, and uh, someone recognized little old me in there. And they started asking me about the program. That sort of thing never really happens too often, but it has. And it's always a little weird. Also, while driving... At a few random different places I was recognized, and I'm told they listen to the show. And all of that is still a new concept for me. And I feel completely pretentious talking about that sort of thing, so I'm going to move on. Because, my God, so weird. And what is this, Chefist, you tried five times? Five times to what, the, the show? The 760-332-8724 number? Should be working should be working just fine. Definitely give it a call right now. Also, now I should take the time to thank those who have donated. I really do appreciate it. Things are falling apart out here. The audio equipment is rather, rather old. This mixer I'm using is rather old, but it's pretty damn good. I like it. Don't think I want to replace that anytime soon. And keep in mind, every donation that you do make to this program, it goes directly to help fund this program and keep the ball moving here. The bills are coming in, and my goodness, things all do get pricey here. Speaking of which, I do want to thank Mr. Phoenix out there. He has donated, of course. Thank you kindly, sir. You are a great listener, and your calls are always pretty damn entertaining. I, of course, appreciate those outside of America. I've noticed the international listeners have been picking up quite a bit. I love that. The, the listeners out there in uh, the Netherlands, uh, Canada, the UK, Russia, and Germany. There's many more out there. 
stars saying, remember you were going to mention the Salton Sea. Well, I want to do a show on the Salton Sea. I live about a, what is it, about an hour away, an hour and one minute, exactly. It's a weird, weird place. I definitely need to do a show on that. I don't have too much time here before I wrap up the program tonight, but I want to bring on a guest and talk about the Salton Sea. Definitely not a place you want to go visit. Al Centro is not a great place to come out and visit. It's it's a death trap out here. It really is the wasteland. Don't think you want to be out here. I should also remind you out there that I do have a program coming up here on, now that would be on a Tuesday, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be joined by Ben E. Zeller. I'll be talking about Heaven's Gate and other religious cults out there. That's going to be a pretty entertaining program. And, of course, Saturday's show will be joined by Lawrence M. Krauss. Don't miss that program, either. That's going to be pretty fun. Pretty damn fun. Now, I was supposed to have a second guest here tonight, but I don't know what happened to him. He seemed to disappear on me. And that's going to happen every now and then. Some guests are going to disappear on me. But that happens. Now, I do have one more email before I forget and wrap up here as program. Let's answer that. This comes from uh, Carrie. She says, thank you for sharing your show with Marshall Masters on Nubiru. It was very informative. I have been in communication with Marshall Masters for several months. Yes, the Hawaii volcano is the beginning of the effects of Nibiru. When I asked people to get prepared, and Marshall has directed me to do for myself, they just laugh at me. <laughs> Star, no, no, Ben Zeller, not Ben Stiller. But yeah, you know, that would be pretty fun if I did get a hold of Ben Stiller here on the program. That guy is top talent. But so is Ben Zeller. He, he's a great guy, and I think you'll really enjoy what he has to offer. So please, definitely stay tuned for that. Now, back to this email here. Yeah, so, Carrie here has been ridiculed for talking about Planet X. That's what the basis of this is. So, she continues with, or they say that they will deal with it when it happens. Isn't that called panic? My background is that I have been a UFO contactee for most of my life. For that, those in charge have made my life very difficult both financially and career-wise. Thank goodness I have relatives and friends that are willing to help me survive. And he goes, or she goes on to say, my story is told in this documentary. And yeah, you know, I feel like I'll just bring you on as a guest if I ever get a chance to. If you ever want to come on here and talk about that experience, I'll let you do so, Carrie. But yes, thank you for that email. Really, really do appreciate that. Now, if you're listening to this on a replay, keep in mind that you can always listen on the TuneIn Radio app, search End of Days, and you'll find the 24-7 network. And, of course, you can go back to michaeldeacon.com for any episode you might have missed. I hope you enjoy tonight's program. Perhaps we didn't find all the answers, but we certainly obtained bits and pieces to the Cosmic Puzzle Board. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for joining me here on this evening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, 
Good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were how appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holden right now. It's crazy. I had no idea they should have missed it before 726. Oh, a Grammy. I like Grammy. I'm a DP real. A lot of good content. A lot of cool topics. Just for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you both that you have From one of the most here. incredibly well-rounded shows. Uh, Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfuckers?